Welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 63, Pope John III. Oh, fuck. Who <laughs> my book at? Uh, I feel like that's the one curse we have to get away with uh, in this episode, because usually we generally have to filter out our swears with little shame bells so that we don't have an explicit tag, but I think that one gets a pass. I wasn't ready. <laughs> I thought about telling you too, but I'm like, no, she always has it handy. It's on her desk. It was on my desk. It just wasn't where I thought it was. Okay, perfect. So if you are listening to this for the first time, which um odd episode to start on, but hey, you do you. When we come to a John, because there are going to be so many Johns, we generally give them a nickname to help them be a little bit more memorable. So, you have your book? Mm-hmm, I do. I got, got it. it ready. I have my D20, so you need two two D20 rolls? Yep. So, the first one is a seven, and the second one is a six. All right, he is a silky dog. Okay, <laughs> Pope John III, the silky dog. Ooh. I don't know, every time... We do one. I go, that's the best it's going to be. How could it be better than Poor Devil or Blue Hook? And and then you throw something like Silky Dog at me and I'm, all right. Yeah. I mean, it's a whole D20 chart. There's plenty of choices. There are. I mean, and we probably will have a good variety because we will, get again, be dealing with up to Pope John 23. That doesn't mean there's 23 of them for reasons we'll get into later. But it's a lot, so... And if for some reason the crew member name chart doesn't work, there is a ship name chart next to it with things like Rambunctious Mermaid. <laughs> well, okay, and again, I thought Silky Dog was the best that we could come up with, and now we're talking Rambunctious Mermaid. So maybe a future Pope will be blessed with such a name. It's true. But now, let's get into this silky old puppo and see what's going on. Silky puppo is even worse, I think. Every dog deserves to be called a puppo, so yeah. John was born in Rome, and according to Evagrius Scholasticus, his birth name was Catalinus. Oh. Yeah, we're doing that name change thing. It's a lot like that dressing. Catalina dressing. Oh, it's not good. Do not like the Catalina dressing. Oh my god, I love it. I love you Catalina love dressing. I think it's oh. because it's sweet. It is very sweet, yes. I need more spice or garlic, like that spicy Caesar dressings. Anyways, <laughs> already digressing. He would take the name John once he assumed the papacy, so for his whole early life he was Catalinus, and his father is referred to in the Liber Pontificalis as the illustrious Anastasius. Oh, another one. Yes, and that sounds like a magician, so the whole it's me, Anastasius, just gets a little bit better. Mm-hmm, just uh, tossing toss the cloak off. Yep, the illustrious. So what this actually means is that his father was something called a vir illustris, which is a phrasing used at the time to refer to a Roman senator who was at the highest power and influence. 
So vir illustris, which literally translates to illustrious man, surprise, surprise, was above the common vir classissimus, who was a very famous man that was used for all senators. And just for completion, there was also vir spectabilis, which is admirable man, which was used in the middle between classissimus and illustrious. So mm, I think I hate these titles. I think they're really bad. I mean, if you were a Roman senator, you want to be an illustrious man instead of a admirable man or a very famous man. It's not super relevant to what we're going to be talking about in this episode, but it does mean that our Pope was from a fairly respectable, well-off, and influential family. That's good. Historians like Jeffrey Richards also believe that this Pope John is the subdeacon John who continued on a project initially started by Pope Pelagius, which was translating the Vita Patrum, writings of the Desert Fathers, from Old Greek into Latin, and any other doctrine from Greek theologians that they could find. Just whoever. Ah, it's Greek. Translate it. Make it Latin. So he believes that the subdeacon John who was responsible for taking over this project is the same John who will become Pope John. If this is the case, then he would have had to have taken the name John before he was made Pope. Well, I mean, if your name is Catalina Dressing. I mean, yeah, maybe you want to go as John. That's kind of like the whole Anne Rice situation. Her birth name is Howard. And so when she went to school and people asked her what her name was, she's like, Anne. Because she just didn't want to be a girl named Howard. Like her first name? Her first name is Howard. Oh my god. And she did not want to be known as the girl named Howard, so she just told everyone her name was Anne. So, yeah, so now he he's like Catalinus, but he gets to seminary, and they're like, what's your name? He's like, John. It's John. I feel like John has been like... Everybody's name is John all throughout history forever. Well, at least in this period, we, we have the first Johns in the Bible. And so clearly, when you're looking for a name as somebody in the church and you don't want to use your real name, it's a good go-to. No one's calling themselves Jesus, though. You know, most people don't call themselves Jesus. They're not aiming very high. So... Either way, we, we can't be entirely sure that this John, Silky Dog, is Subdeacon John, but if it is him, he's responsible for reinvigorating the West's exposure to Eastern theology, so that would be something we would credit him for, because accessibility is great. But that's pretty much all we know about his early life. And unfortunately, for reasons we're going to get to fairly shortly, very little is known about John's papacy as well. What? We have some key points to hit on as we go, but nothing that should come close to what we should have for the length of his actual papacy. Like, we no longer have the shrouding of antiquity, we have the shrouding of medievality, if you will. I... Mm. Yeah, I hate it too, but... The shrouding of medievality. So we're we're going to coin that as a new thing. That's too many syllables. Try to spell it. <laughs> I'm not gonna. I tried to put that in my notes as like something like, how do I explain this? And so there's a big squiggly red line there. This is not an uplifting Lawrence Fishburne film. I will not spell anything. So the reason that we're dealing with this shrouding of mediviality is because 
most of the records from the time that he was actually Pope get destroyed. And so as we go through him and eventually come to rate him, we need to acknowledge that all we have to go on is an extremely bare-bones account of his papacy, and he probably deserves more than we're eventually going to be able to give him. So, the first thing that we know about his papacy is that he represents a new evolution in terms of imperial encroachment on the church. I mean, evolution sounds positive, and this is... Poke of evolution. A poke of evolution, yeah. So, this is where we start to see the next step of what we've seen in progression of Justinian's grasp on the papacy. He's still alive. Yeah, and we we saw Silverius arrested, deposed, and exiled. We saw Vigilius first appointed and then entirely discredited and excommunicated. And then we saw Pelagius installed as Pope on Justinian's command. And now, even in the case of an election, Justinian decreed that imperial confirmation was required before a Pope could even be consecrated as the legitimate Pope. This is going to be the convention for over the next hundred years. As soon as the Roman clergy elect a pope, they have to send a letter to the emperor and then wait until he says yes to consecrate that pope. Oh, imagine if, like, popes now had to do that. Right? It's definitely not a good look for the church at this time. So this could be considered the start of what is called the Byzantine papacy period where we will see the popes chosen primarily from that Apocrisarii role that we talked about. So generally the person who was next elected pope was the last pope's representative to Constantinople. Because Justinian knows that dude. It's who he would have the most direct influence with. So you could argue that with Justinian interceding, Vigilius was like the first of the Byzantine popes. But the clergy were a lot more resistant at that point to having a pope appointed for them than they were about this whole receiving confirmation of their choice. So they kind of are a little bit more accepting because they go, okay, we're still electing, we just have to wait for the confirmation. So the reason we bring up the whole definition of the Byzantine papacy thing isn't really to just discuss the demarcation of time, because you can argue, obviously, between anywhere in the last four popes that that kind of started. We bring it up now because this has a direct impact on John's papacy. John would have been elected sometime shortly after the death of his predecessor Pelagius in early March 561, but because they're now requiring this imperial affirmation, he doesn't get consecrated for nearly five months while they waited for the letter. They need to, like, streamline that. It gets worse. We're going to see periods of, like, a full year with no Pope just because they're waiting on these letters. So when it finally arrived, he was consecrated on July 16th of the same year. But it was a long wait. We know very little about the early years of his papacy and what he did in Rome other than he's generally described as having a genuine desire to provide for and ensure the safety of his flock. Horace Mann's New Advent article on John III cites an inscription that existed about John until about the 15th century that read, quote, In the midst of straits he knew how to be bountiful and feared not to be crushed amidst the crumbling world. In this quote, and not having much detail on John, 
on what he was doing at the time presents us with a, a good opportunity, at least, to check in with what's happening now that the Ostrogothic kingdom is over and Italy's back in the empire and Rome is under control of Justinian's military general, Narses. Did Belisarius die? Well, we're going to get into that. All right. So to do this and to talk about this crumbling world, the first thing we need to do, of course, is talk about Narses. I've mentioned him a couple times already, just sort of in the flow of things, but he is definitely our new standout figure in the Byzantine Imperial Rome. And in order to understand Rome's current political feeling, we need to understand him. So Narses was a eunuch. Originally from the Persian-controlled half of Armenia, which was called Pez Armenia, and he entered imperial service and rose to prominence as a military general and a vir illustrious Praetorian prefect under Justinian. He earned the emperor's confidence during the Nika riots that occurred in 532 in Constantinople, which ended with massive destruction and death but not the end of Justinian's reign, thanks to Narses, who, in, in short form, what happened at this riot is that Narses essentially walked straight into a massive mob that was already killing people left and right. While they wanted to kill the emperor, Narses is completely unarmed, and he bribed one of the major factions of this mob into being loyal to him. That's like a crit success on charisma there. A hundred percent. And this is, we're talking, like, this is a massive scale riot in the arena. And he just walks over to one side without any weapons, and he says everything that he needs to say to bribe them into being loyal to him. And so with the one side quelled, and like, okay, these guys are going to stop fighting. The other side, they just slaughter entirely. So like thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are there rioting and killing people just get completely cut down. Now that they've quelled like half of them, okay, the rest of you, dead. That's it. Man, woman, child, dead. And so that cemented Narcy's rise. And then when Belisarius was sent to reunify the empire and began to conquer in Africa and in Italy, Narses was eventually sent to follow him at the head of some reinforcement forces as a subordinate to Belisarius. Unfortunately, Belisarius' supporters managed to convince Arjonwick that Narses wasn't there to support him, but was there to supplant him. It's an obvious, like, choice. And you can see why he would be suspicious, and then when all of his followers are saying, hey, look, this guy is a rising star and he's coming to take you over. And then when Narses went against Belisarius's orders, at least twice, one to very positive results and one not so much, the tension between the two men led to Justinian recalling Narses to Constantinople. But he returned to Rome 12 years later in 552 at the head of another army when Ostrogothic King Totila had raised an army to come at the empire and Belisarius had been retired to Constantinople in 549. There's no more Belisarius in Rome, so they're sending Narses back over to deal with Totila. And Narses drove his forces straight at Totila at the Battle of Taganae 
and the Ostrogothic army was defeated, and Totila was killed. Oh. So this is the moment where, even though we've said Italy's back in the Empire, Italy is back in the Empire. There is no Ostrogothic resistance at this point. It's been murdered. It's been murdered. And then he also faced another impending threat on Italy, which was a massive army of Alamanni and Franks. Okay, I know it's people, but imagine just a bunch of sausages. A sausage army? Yeah, it's a sausage army. I don't know how I would take on a sausage army. What would you do? I don't know. I assume boiling water works. Do you have enough boiling water, though? You could figure it out. You could bring in some open flames, you know. Real those sausage boys. At least your army wouldn't go hungry. Mm-hmm. It would be a pretty good occupation. Mm-hmm. I am a sausage griller. So these Alamanni and these Franks had been invited by the Ostrogoths as reinforcements, and they were showing up a little bit late to the party because the Ostrogoths have already been defeated. But they're like, hey, let's, uh... Let's just go at this anyways. And this was a total and utterly destructive victory for Narses. That didn't go well for those sausages. Are you ready for some good stats? Yeah, I, want, I, I, I suppose. I don't like numbers. In Agathius's histories, he says that 80 Byzantine soldiers died out of the army of 18,000. Pretty good. That's not that bad. Only 80 casualties. But only five men in the whole of the Ostrogoth army of 30,000 survived. Ooh, wow, okay. What were they doing? How'd they survive? Were they pretending to be dead? Uh, They must have been. This is likely a gross exaggeration, but it still gives you an idea of absolute and utter crushing victory. So those five men were, it's probably not quite that cut and dry, but... Maybe they did just survive by laying amongst the sausage bodies. They didn't go through and, like, stab all the bodies to make sure they were down? There were 30,000 of them. Hey. If you miss five, you're probably still doing okay. (laughs) You're right. So after these two major victories, Narses was definitely, like, the big guy at this point. And so he takes control of the whole of Italy as the prefect. Later historians will call him the Exarch, and the Exarch is the Eastern term for governor, so we're going to see that term come into play here. It's similar to that vicarious term that we mentioned for Pope Pelagius's father back in his episode. So now he is the Exarch of Italy. Also, during this time, intrigue in Constantinople had cropped up against Belisarius, who had already retired. And he gets tried for corruption in 562 and found guilty. What he corrupt? It's more about just trying to bring the good general down, give or take. But he was found guilty. And although he was quickly pardoned by Justinian, like, very soon after, he died within three years. So Narses really is the big man now, because the old big man is, is dead and gone. So, that's Narses. Now we have to introduce a new tribe that we haven't talked about before. And these are the Lombards. Have you heard of the Lombards? You know, no. There's a town called Lombard near here. There's a region of Italy called Lombardy. So, the Lombards 
thought to be called so as a bastardization of the word longobards, which means long beards. <laughs> yeah. They are a barbarian German tribe. Ah. We haven't seen one of those since the Ostrogoths, so... Well, they all died. Except for five of them. Maybe they all made all of these long-bearded babies. Yes, they were busy. So, according to Paul the Deacon, they originally came from Scandinavia, but migrated through the Elba region of Pannonia, which is modern-day Hungary and Central Europe, through the late 4th century, around 387, due to persistent conflict with the Vandals. And then, by following the path of Odoacer while he was on his way to becoming the eventual king of Italy. So, they've just followed down through that Germanic area and kind of ended coming this way. So, but not in, like, a conquering way, just in a, mm, this doesn't seem like a good enough place to live. I mean, they've been doing a bit of pillaging as they go, as... As you barbarian. Yeah. As you barbarian. But it's not, they are very much nomadic people looking for more land as they're going. So by 526, the Lombards were operating as a small but independent monarchy under a king called Waco, having taken over the territory of the old barbarian tribe that we used to deal with, which is the Heruli. Then in 541, the Lombards under their leader, Audouin, were invited to settle in the Danube region by none other than Byzantine Emperor Justinian. Why is he inviting them? He's like, hey, there's this territory, and rather than come and fight me, why don't we settle you up here? Just have it? Yeah. So they had signed a treaty with the emperor that made them federati, much like Odoacer had been. And so... If it's been a while or you didn't listen to our episodes where we featured Odoacer, the Federati were tribes that maintained a military alliance with the Empire in exchange usually for land and wealth. And so in this case, the Lombards were serving as a defense for the Empire against another tribe in the region called the Gepids, who the Lombards then went and conquered in 560, led by Audoin's son, King Alboin. The names are going to get a little bit janky for a bit. All right. Way to go, Germanic tribes. There's some good Lombard leader names here. So they then come into the more significant purview of the church after this point, after they've conquered the Gepids, when they continue to ally with the Byzantines in the wars against the Ostrogoths, where they're fighting on behalf of the Empire in the Battle of Taganae under Narses against Totila in 552. And after Totila was defeated and killed in this battle, Narses was able to reclaim Italy for the Empire, and the Lombard forces played a quite significant hand in that. So, just bear in mind this relationship that the Lombards had with Narses, because it will become important later. And then, in 565, Emperor Justinian died, and everything changed for the Empire, particularly for Italy. That's how it be sometimes. That's how it be sometimes. And, you know, maybe, maybe they won't miss him, but maybe they will. So. What'd he die of? Just nothing? So, Justinian died of natural causes. He was, like, in his 80s. Oh, okay. Sometimes it'd be like that. Sometimes it'd be like that. So, without Justinian and his zeal for bringing back the whole of the empire under one rule, 
Italy and the West became significantly less of a priority for Justinian's administrators and for his successor, Justin II, who, by the way, Justin II, in his later life, would go on to be full-on kooky bananas crazy. Ooh, I like a kooky bananas crazy. Like, we don't have reason to come back to him during that part of his life, so... We mention it now because it is a wild ride. And if you want to hear more, Totalis Rankin's episode on him does a very entertaining account of his literal descent into madness. We're not even talking like Caligula crazy where it's like, what happened to that man? Like he just has a complete break from reality. It is like full on. So by all means, go and check out that episode from Totalis Rankium because they do such a good job with it. So, back to Italy's diminishing status as a priority. Actually, it, it would probably be more accurate to say that Italy's not at all a priority now under the new emperor. And you can understand why, because he was facing threats from the east, from the Avar tribes, and the Sassanid Empire in Persia, who both posed significant military problems and more, so he doesn't have time for Italy. You know, and considering that those threats are not only way more imminent, but also geographically much closer to Constantinople, Italy, which is sitting over there having been beat up and half-destroyed, means nothing. Besides, Narses was in control of Italy, and there wasn't much fighting to be done now, so he could get things back in order, right? Maybe. Yeah, except this poses a problem because Narses is heavily unpopular with the Italians. Ooh, why though? Because he had implemented a series of new decrees that had been sent by Justinian as pragmatic sanctions to consolidate and reorganize imperial power in Italy, you know, after it had been ransacked and destroyed during the Gothic Wars. Trying to rebuild. He's trying to rebuild, but all of this comes at the cost of insanely high taxes levied on the Italian people who are still starving and desolate and dying of disease and famine. I would be displeased too. I'm going to give you a quote here from Thomas Hodgkin's Italy and Her Invaders. It was undoubtedly a time of general compression and misery. The fever of war was past, and the pain of sore wounds which twenty years of bloodshed had inflicted upon Italy was now felt perhaps more bitterly than ever. All over the land were cities lying desolate, the chasms still left in their walls where the Gothic battering rams had pounded into them, long streets of burnt houses where the fiery bolts of the catapult had carried the wasting flame. To repair these ruined cities seemed to have been of the chief work of the busy eunuch, whose official title seems to have been the patrician, the great city of Mediolanum, that Milan has been more than once destroyed, and has more than once arisen in splendor from its ashes, felt especially the benefit of his restoring hand. So, here we see that Milan's getting some rebuilding, but that it's coming as a huge cost to the rest of Italy. So, like, instead of sending whatever the Roman equivalent of the Red Cross is, they just charge everyone. So, the Roman equivalent of the Red Crosses is the church, <gasps> which is, you know... Is broken and sad. So broken and so poor and definitely at the center of this whole being destroyed by the Ostrogoths thing. Milan's getting rebuilt at a huge cost. 
And Rome, by comparison, is getting severely taxed with very little to show for it. Like at all. They're not rebuilding in Rome. And there was no way that Rome was going to be restored to anything close to what it had been before. So all that Rome had to show for the huge sums of money and goods that they were forced to provide to the empire were a couple of repaired bridges and walls. That's all they got. And there was very little in terms of relief for the starving people or the poor people who had nowhere to go. I mean, it's fairly unsurprising that the people of Rome were very resentful and that the general sentiment began to burble that maybe all of this money was not going anywhere but Narcy's pocket. So, like, he was stealing it? Yeah, or just profiting off their misery. Mm. They can't see what's going on in Mediolanum. So far away, and they're starving to death, they're not going to undertake a good journey, so... I mean, if they undertook a journey, maybe they could, like... Eat some, I don't know what's there, lizards? Small mammals? I mean, you have to remember, remember when we talked a couple weeks ago about how people in the countryside were eating their children? Oh, maybe there isn't any lizards or small mammals. Yeah, I think at this point there's going to be nothing as far as the eye can see. So they're feeling a little bit taken advantage of. And this leads to a delegation sent from Rome to the new emperor Justin II complaining that their current situation in the Empire was worse than it had ever been under the Ostrogoths, and if Justin wasn't about to make changes for them and get rid of Narcisse, the people of Italy were going to shift their allegiance back to the Goths. If you're not going to help us, we're going to invite them back. What five men were left. So we have the Libra Pontificalis account. Then the Romans, inspired by malice, sent an accusation to Justin and Sophia to say, It were better for the Romans to service the Goths than the Greeks, for Narses the eunuch governs us and reduces us to slaves, and our most devout prince is ignorant of it. Either free us from his hand, or we and the city of Rome will serve the Gentiles. Here in this account, obviously the Greeks refer to the East, and we're going to see this commonly used as phrasing. When we're talking about the East or the Eastern Church, we're generally going to see the phrase, the Greeks, even though they're clearly not Greek. We'll point it out now because, you know, it's going to come up. The Liber Pontificalis also gives us Narcy's reaction when he receives a letter declaring that he was being recalled from Rome. Is it written in that style where it's like a conversation or like a fan fiction? I mean, it is in the sense that, yes, we definitely have a direct quotation from him. But it's only one line, so it's not a full dialogue situation. So I wanted three pages of, and then he got a letter in his countenance spell. And well, well, I'll read it to you. He said, when Narses heard this, he said, if I have done evil to the Romans, may evil fall on me. So that's it. So does evil fall on him? Well, let's see. This is a good time for God to smite somebody. Right? I mean, if, if he, but you know, we know. We know historically that he wasn't just doing evil to the Romans. He was actually rebuilding, but he was concentrating his efforts. So Narcisse does leave Rome and retires to Naples at this point. But now he's bitter and angry and potentially quite insulted by the new empress. Because in the letter recalling him from his command, Paul the deacon tells us that she might have sent him a message that 
Since he wasn't a man, he should go spin wool. Oh, but spinning wool is fun. He certainly doesn't agree. You could learn to knit. Knit some sacks. It's good. It'll calm you. Yes, but this is clearly an attack on the fact that he's a eunuch. So, hey, you're not a man. Go spin some wool. He's not feeling your your crafty enthusiasm. <laughs> but Narcis is like, wow, how dare you make a comment on my lack of testicles. He sent word directly to the Lombards who are his trusted armed forces, to inform them that, hey, I'm not in charge of Italy anymore. And he made it clear, either by insinuation or direct invitation, that if the Lombards were to invade, they could pretty much have Italy full stop. Hey, that's a great idea. Are the Lombards, are they bored? Are they happy where they are? Are they gonna invade? Italy is so much bigger than what they currently have. Look, I would love a mansion, like a bigger house, right? But also, I don't want one because I don't want to clean it. So like, I don't know, are they happy where they're at? Or do they want a bigger space? Are they gonna hire maids? They're not gonna hire maids, Fry. They are going to take prisoners of war who will do that for them. Okay, I mean, as long as they have a plan for cleaning their new giant Italy mansion. Oh, they have plans. They have so many plans. So this whole idea that Narcisse is directly reaching out to the Lombards and being like, hey, you know, if you wanted Italy, I'm not in charge there anymore, is recorded in, in many sources, including the Liber Pontificalis, Paul the Deacon, and Isidore of Seville. So I'm going to give you Paul the Deacon's account. Therefore, greatly wrapped by hate and fear, he withdrew to Neapolis, a city of Campania, and soon sent messengers to the nation of the Langobards, urging them to abandon the barren fields of Pannonia and come take possession of Italy, teeming with every sort of riches. At the same time, he sends many types of fruits and samples of other things in which Italy is well supplied, whereby to attract their minds to come. Where do you get this fruit? Well, I mean, Italy is a fairly rich growing area, and even though they've had nothing but famine and disease, we have to remember that Narses was a high-up general, so if there was delicious fruits to have, this is the man who would have them? Or, like, he's just sending them, like, dead babies? <laughs> Look at these delicious fruits. <laughs> You could have this to sup on in Italy. It's taken a deeply dark turn. <laughs> Veal is very different in the medieval period. Oh, God. Well, yeah, okay. That's that's what he's now sending. He's like, look at these delicious fruits. Maybe he's having the same level of mental breakdown that Justin too will have, but... You know, obviously, this is heavily contested, whether or not Narcisse actually invited them to invade, but... And shockingly, it's not suggested in Gregory of Tours' writings, and this man loved a good dramatic story, so I feel like if it were true, he would have included it, especially considering that Gregory of Tours is a contemporary of this time, so... He just loves the drama. He loves the drama. He writes, we, we've seen a little bit of Gregory of Tours, but he is, he's hilarious. He's a drama llama. He loves the drama llama. He will write even like the most benign situation into some drama llama. So, but either way, whether Narcisse invited the Lombards or not, the Lombards came 
in 568, led by King Alboin, who thought that dead baby fruit was a great idea. So they up and left Pannonia in what was basically a mass exodus, and quickly swept through Italy, assuming control of the greater part of Italy with little to no resistance. So Longinus... Oh no, that's a bad name. Yeah, you could say Longinus, but, you know, whatever. He was Narcisse's replacement after Narcisse withdrew to Naples, and he was supremely ineffective and could do nothing to stop them. And thus, they founded the Lombard Kingdom, and the Lombard Kingdom will be the predominant power in Italy all the way through 774. That's a long time. And even after that point, they will continue to exist in segmented city-states as clients under new incoming dominant powers. So we're going to be talking about the Lombards for quite a while to come. And so for now, we're going to leave it there, knowing that Italy is now the Lombard Kingdom. They were in the Empire. Now they're the Lombard Kingdom. Oh, and, and by the way, because, of course, at the point of their invasion... The Lombards are Aryan. All these barbarians are Aryan. They're Aryan barbarians. (laughs) So after finally getting reunited with their Orthodox leaders for like a hot minute when they came back to the Empire, the church is once again faced with heretic rulers. This changes, eventually, but at the time they couldn't have known that. This is why we don't have records of John's papacy. Because invasions and massive overhauls of ruling structure does not good records make. So yeah, this finally brings us back to Pope John, who is Pope and watching this all unfold in horror. They're eating babies. They're eating babies. They're being plundered yet again. They are under heretics yet again. And whatever tiny bit of order that had actually been achieved by Narcissus is just evaporating now. And so he personally leaves Rome and heads straight to Naples in the hope of meeting with Narcisse and convincing him to come back and prevent this invasion. Fix it. Hey, remember when everyone said they hated you? I'm so sorry about that. So, despite his bitterness over the Italian people completely turning against him, the personal visit from the Pope actually persuades Narcisse to accept and return to Rome in 571. Well, if the Lombards are there until 700-something, it sounds like Narcissist is gonna die. Narcissist. Well, if you want a bit of fan fiction, here, I have the Pontificalis account of this meeting. So, it says, And Pope John began to entreat Narcissus to return to Rome. Narcissus said, Tell me, most holy father, what evil have I done to the Romans? I shall go back to the feet of him that sent me, and all of Italy shall know how I toiled for her with all of my strength. Pope John answered, I myself should go to him sooner than you shall leave this land. And Narses returned to Rome with the most holy Pope John. So he's like, you're going to go back to just, or you're going to go back to Emperor Justin and tell him how hard you worked rather than save us? I'll go tell him. And you can't leave. Please stay. And he does. He just comes. It doesn't say he brought an army. It's just like, this man, he's here. But remember, he has a great relationship with the Lombards. Oh, yeah, because they're his friends. Exactly. So he's going to come back. John's feeling good about this. Unfortunately, it seems that in doing this, 
John had failed to notice that the sentiment of the Roman people had not changed when it came to Narses. Even with this invasion, they still hated him, and they now believed that he was responsible for inviting the Lombards to invade, and so they definitely are not feeling more charitably towards him. He needs, like, a polling or whatever, like, like the news source needs to do a, this is how the Roman people are feeling. Yeah, exactly. Um, so now that he's gone and brought him back without his polling, the animosity starts to spread to Pope John as well. Oh. They are not feeling really good about Silky Dog. No. And the hostility was so palpable when John and Narcisse were back in Rome that the Pope began to fear for his safety. So he decides he's going to retreat from the city, and he decides that, you know, I, I am the Pope of Rome, and I don't feel safe here, but I need to stay somewhere nearby. So he takes up residence in the catacombs of Praetextatus outside the walls on the Via Appia. So we have not seen a Pope run and hide in the cemetery for a long time, but we are back there. Mm-hmm. It's been a while. He essentially just threw Narses at Rome and said, you handle this, and ran away. Or or more accurately, he was probably forced out, but the former is a better image in my head. Like, I just love the idea of him being like, oh no, I f***ed up, here you go, goodbye! Bye! And he stayed hiding within the catacombs, continuing to act as the Pope, conducting masses and consecrating bishops, until 573 when Narses died. Mm-hmm. So that means that he was living in the catacombs for two years. And people obviously knew he was there. It's not like it was a secret. Yeah, and I mean, he was obviously not living in the tombs themselves. He was living in, like, one of those little churches that are in the catacombs. It's the Church of the Saints Tiburtius and Valerian, but it's definitely not the Lateran. When he finally came out, when he found out that Narcisse was dead and maybe people would chill a little bit, he returned to the Lateran. And it's not clear exactly how Rome received him at this point, but he does get accepted back. And we can just assume that his prestige and reputation remained at least tarnished in some degree. But he still had some time to be Pope, so we have a little bit more to cover with what he did with his time. And one is directly related with his retreat. Having spent a great deal of time in the catacombs, John was very intimately aware more than most, of their need for repair. Uh, yes, he would be. Yeah, so he took a personal vested interest in restoring them and is often credited with their preservation, basically until the modern day. If we may not have them today if he hadn't done what he had done to restore them and if he had not given them the attention. He also ordered that the clerics of the Lateran Basilica would be responsible for the masses conducted in the catacombs since those clerics had a much greater sense of resource than the smaller churches, which were traditionally responsible for it. So he also saw through the completion of the Church of Saints Philip and James, the San Apostoli that we mentioned last week, which was a church that even in its own time was lauded for some spectacular Byzantine-style mosaics. And it still exists. Uh, it, it has been destroyed and reconstructed many times, but you can actually look and see that this is a place that still exists, built by Pope John. Oh, that's nice. 
It's quite large. Yeah. But you can tell the age of it if you just look at the side wall. It's, um, it's definitely got that look about it. It's kind of hard to see in that image, but there's a bunch of sculptures in front, and it's, um, it's fairly cool. I've been there. And the final thing that we will cover is, unfortunately, another misstep in his papacy. And this has to do with the case of two Frankish bishops, Sagittarius of Gap and Salonius of Embrun. Oh, Sagittarius? Who names their kid that? Romans do. Remember, his name is Catalinus, so... Yeah, his name was Catalina Dressing, I know. These men had been condemned and deposed from their bishoprics at a synod in Lyon in 567. We don't know what they'd actually been condemned for. The sources that are cited in the History of Civilization by F. Guizot call them thorough brigands. So that's all we know. But we do know that the bishops had then written to the king of Burgundy, who is called Guntram, to protest their deposition. And somehow they managed to convince the king that their depositions had been unwarranted. So Guntram had written to the Pope to appeal the depositions on behalf of the bishops, and John determined, after getting this letter from the king, that the bishops should be restored. Unfortunately for John, it appears he was misled, because Guntram was misled, and both of the restored bishops were then redeposed at another synod, the one in Chalon in 579. And this time they were redeposed, not on the same charges, but new offenses bad people yeah they were not good men and and by the way the records for their second deposition state high treason and being traitors to their country wow so we don't know what they did but it was bad they did something wrong and bad they did something wrong and bad and were wrong and bad people so he restored them and then went oh no <laughs> i regret this terribly so Pope John, our silky dog, died on July 13th of 574, with no particular cause listed. Some of the basic articles on him cite him as having died at the age of 54, which kind of rules out old age. But I mean, it doesn't really. Well, I mean, considering that Justinian died in his 80s, like... Don't men start having, like, heart attacks at, like, 35? It's true. I mean, it could be that. No one has said that anywhere, but... It's possible. He was buried in St. Peter's, and like so many popes of the era, his tomb was destroyed. However, we have a fragment of his epitaph, provided in Wendy Reardon's book, and she cites historian Petrus Malleus for finding this, and it just says, Pope John III, who completed the Church of Philip and James, as is found in the following verse, Pelagius began it, Pope John completed it. And that's what we have on Pope John. To try to rate him? Let's rate this silky dog. His name is better than his entire papacy. Why well, again, remember, most of the records are gone. We need to at least be somewhat charitable. Papatum infallium. Hard one to judge. Most of the details have been lost. But what does survive seems to represent a pope who cared about the welfare of his people and is responsible for the preservation of significant catacombs. Except for that time he got bamboozled. Yeah, well, we have we have two giant missteps. You know, the bringing back of Narcisse, who was so hated, so much that he has to go into hiding. 
Right, he is trying, but he had to go into hiding because it was such a bad move. And then he undoes the deposition of two really rotten men. So it's it's not a great look for papal infallibility or primacy. It's not a category he'll do super well in. He's a good trier. He's not a good doer. He is a good trier, yeah. I don't know. I'll give him maybe like a two or a three. I'm really... Uh, yeah, I can't I can't see my way through giving him more than a two. So I'm going to give him a two for being a trier and the catacombs. Okay, two is good then. Two is good for me. Then we'll give him a four. Fructus prohibitum. The people in Rome were angry enough with him that he had to go and live in the catacombs. I mean, that's worth a point? At least. Two, maybe. One, he spent two years in those catacombs. He can get a point for each. Like, they clearly didn't calm down in any reasonable amount of time. It's true. So you'll give him a two. I'll give him one so he gets a three in that category. Seculari impactum. You know, the church is taking another massive hit here with the overthrow of the imperial forces in Italy. They're now being ruled by Arians. They're being raided, invaded, pillaged, and destroyed. So the church isn't solely responsible for preventing these things, but we're seeing nothing so far as a solution goes to help the secular population. And the one effort that he does make to try and interact with the secular authority and make things better goes really bad. Things are real bad for the secular people of Rome. It's going to be a zero. It's got to be a zero. We can't negative point him. We cannot. And that would not be fair. Fossium Sanctus. Let's look at this man's face. Show me the picture. Picture. (laughs) The picture, Fred? Do you want to look at the picture? (laughs) It's a picture. (laughs) For those who missed the discussion... Fry was explaining how I like to make fun of her Western accent. She goes after me for Canadian words. I go after her for pitcher. Midwest accent. Here it is. Here it is. And then you took it so to heart that you went and looked up other people from the Midwest who say it like that. You sent me that little article. That's how we talk here. All right. Here's the picture of Pope John. It's so small. It's small, but I mean, that is a... That is, I think, the first of the, like, it's it's a beard, but there is clearly a handlebar mustache happening there. He looks like a silky dog. He looks like a silky dog. He does. He's got some wild cheekbones and a handlebar mustache. I mean, and anyone who looks like a puppo is going to get some points from me. So, I don't know. It's pretty good. It's small, but it's pretty good. Actually, hang on. Hang on, I found a website that had almost all of these images on them, and I was like, yay! So, let me see if they had him. I have a slightly bigger image for you. Kind of. Look how much like a silky dog he looks. Oh, that is the silkiest of dogs! Yes. Yes. I I think that's worth some points. What do you want to give him? Mmm... I can give him maybe, like, a four or a five. He looks exactly like a silky dog, and it is kind of uncanny. Okay, so he's going to get a five from you. Yeah, I'll, I'll, you know what? I'm going to give him a six because smooth silkiness. <laughs> so, yeah, so he'll get an 11, which, when we put through the calculator, gives him a 2.75. So, for those of you at home following along... 
I just was sending Brie pictures of silky terriers. Gorgeous, gorgeous lady. Beautiful dog. Tempest Pontificus. So July 17th, 561 to July 13th, 574. 12 years. 12 years. Two of those were in a catacomb. Two of those were in a catacomb. So he gets a score of three. All right, everybody, it's the cannon bonus round. Nope. (gasps) We can't make him the patron saint of this shiny puppo. And he does not get to be the patron saint of shiny puppo, so that's okay. I mean, he is already known as Silky Dog, so it works out. Which brings us to our total score, which is not good. It is a 12.75. Considering the last two popes we covered got 28, some of them for scandal, but... Ooh, that is a drop. That is a drop. I mean, do I need to ask you if he's papally enough? I'm going to have to say no, so don't ask. I won't ask. So that brings us to the end of our episode. But first, we have patrons to absolve of their temporal sins. So we absolve and thank Celine Alvarez. Ego te absolvo. We also have other thanks to make. We need to thank Rob and Jamie of Totalis Rankium, as always, and Rex Factor. And we also want to thank Thugs and Miracles, who recommended us. Age of Victoria, who's always recommending us, like seriously. Every second of every day. We cannot thank you enough for all the recommendations. You are the best. Uh, Presidency's podcast that recommended us, Partial Historians who recommended us, and Mega Dumbcast, and Can't Make This Up History. So thank you all so much for putting in some words about us. And so with that, thank you for listening, and we can say thank you and goodbye. Bye. Don't forget to rate and review.